This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans and this edition has been funded by the Agnes Hunter Trust. What people quite often think is because they had pain when they had the cancer, they now have pain after surgery. That must mean I've got the cancer come back. Now, in most cases, we do not need to have the cancer coming back to explain this pain. Now, the teams will investigate as they see fit and they will decide whether or not oncologically there's an issue. But I say, look, there doesn't have to be oncologically an issue. 99 times out of 100 of these sort of pains is not from recurrence. And going through and explaining what it is and what it is not, people say, thank you for doing that because I didn't know. And people saying to me, how can you have pain two years after surgery? You should be up on your feet and back to work and everything should be rosy. What we do know is you look at people who had head and neck surgery, had major neck dissection after head and neck surgery, two years after 75% of people have not gone back to work because of symptoms from many things, including pain. One of the consequences of an ever-increasing cancer survival rate is that the number of people who experience long-term pain as a result of the cancer or its treatment is growing. A recent review, Pain in Cancer Survivors, Filling in the Gaps, by Drs Paul Farquhar-Smith and Matthew Brown, states that clearly cancer treatments, new and established, may be associated with a significant long-term pain burden, and the time and resources must be invested into understanding and consequently treating what is a growing pain epidemic. Dr Paul Farquhar-Smith, one of the authors of that report, is consultant in anaesthesia and pain medicine at the UK's leading tertiary cancer centre, the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. He treats both inpatients and outpatients, where he sees predominantly cancer survivors who live with long-term pain. Now, this might be a silly question, but maybe naively I would have thought that the word survivor in this context is someone who's had cancer, been treated successfully and is therefore better. So how does he define survivor? Our working definition is that anybody who's been diagnosed with cancer and is still alive. Now, that pulls in a number of different populations, those of which are actively going through current treatment, those of which have recently stopped treatment, and those of which had treatment maybe years ago and yet are still having issues with some of the symptoms from the treatments or other things. The word survivor conjures up a very small number of people who survive a disaster. Cancer isn't a disaster anymore. Yeah, and now again, there's been discussion about the use of the term cancer survivor and whether or not it has sort of negative connotations because of the other sort of uh, use of survivorship. I think it sort of works to a degree, but it doesn't mean that we should, you know, allow it to carry on and maybe if there's a better term somebody can come up with, great. But for me, I think people do like the fact that they have survived. They have, you know, vanquished something. They have succeeded. Although we've got to be careful not saying that people who don't survive are failures or what do people say, you know, you lost your battle. It's not about battles, it's about surviving the best you can. And I think it, at the moment it does encompass the group of patients we see and most people don't, you know, they do refer to themselves as a survivor. As I said, with that caveat that there are probably better terms if we, if we thought about it, but it's still commonly accepted as being the term to use.
But the title of your research paper, Pain in Cancer Survivors, survivor doesn't mean that the treatment is over. No, not, not necessarily. Again, it does depend on what definition you look at. But the working definition is anybody who has a diagnosis of cancer and is still alive, to me, is a survivor. And it also that reflects that we do see people at different stages in their cancer journey. And it doesn't mean that we, oh, we're only dealing with the people who have had their treatment and are now in remission or cured. No, that, although that is a group of patients that we see, we include everybody else in that and because we treat those people. For example, people with procedure pain, acute pain that they have associated with the treatments they have, which is surgery, chemotherapy and radiotherapy. Well, I was going to ask you, what are the causes? I mean, one might assume that following treatment for cancer, successful treatment for cancer, one might assume that there would be no pain there. So what does cause that? So the main avenues of treatment are surgical, radiotherapy and chemotherapy. Now, each of those treatments have people that have symptoms from those different treatments. The one we see a lot of is this post or, or after surgery persistent pain. Now, this is a very strange concept to people who don't know, and even to some practitioners, because this is where pain persists, even though the surgery may be healed and, and to all intents and purposes, done and dusted. However, there is a significant proportion of patients who get significant pain after the surgery for reasons that are not apparent if you don't know them. And they are what happens to the underlying nervous system. The damage to the nervous system somehow creates a situation where it maintains the pain itself without having to have the damage to maintain it. So this is this persistent post-surgical pain that you can get after any sort of surgery, not just surgery after cancer, but any sort of surgery. And it's a very common problem nationally. We see that a lot, especially after breast surgery, especially after head and neck surgery, especially after thoracotomy, which is cutting the chest for certain procedures, some lung procedures, and then some gastrointestinal tract tumour procedures. Just explain what's going on there. The affected part has been removed, uh, and the cancer has been removed, if you like. Yeah. But the pain persists, or a different sort of pain. Yeah, so what happened, people get an acute pain, or a pain around the time of surgery, which, which we understand, we know we can do things about, and is generally pretty well done. What happens is, because of a change in the nervous system, in the pain-sensing system, the system gets set up so normally when pain is caused, it's caused by tissue damage. But then this pain takes over and the pain is the problem in itself and not caused by tissue damage. Although that would originally set up, we think, by damage to nerves that you can't see at time of surgery. So it's like the collateral damage that is unavoidable to get rid of the tumour. But then that sets up changes in the nervous system that then causes this pain that can carry on without any external influence. And this is this persistent post-surgical pain that is very problematic and difficult conceptually because people say, look, how can I have pain when everything's healed up and everything's gone? And this is this change in the nervous system that is set up that then causes the maintenance and perpetuation of the pain. So is that what they call neuropathic pain? It is thought to be a type of neuropathic pain. So neuropathic pain just says that it's pain probably from damage or a problem with the nervous system. That's quite a broad spectrum, but this pain is thought to be a one of the subtypes, if you like, of neuropathic pain, or neuropathic, predominantly neuropathic. Now, without getting too complicated, 
there are definitely some patients with this persistent post-surgical pain that don't seem to have very many neuropathic elements. So the pain doesn't sound, isn't described in the ways that neuropathic pain normally is. However, we do think that predominantly it is neuropathic-y or neuropathic-like in certain cases. And therefore, the current treatments do tend to be based around our current treatments for neuropathic pain. Which are? Well, there's, there's many. There's, there's the non-pharmacological, pharmacological, uh, so supportive care is very important, psychology, physiotherapy, all these are very important, these supportive things. We tend to sort of also use pharmacology, and then the pharmacological ways of addressing neuropathic pain are in many different types of drug type, which include those medicines that were previously known as antidepressants and anticonvulsants. Now, these are a bit of a misnomer, because these medications are not being given for depression, nor are they being given for epilepsy. However, the mechanism that they work or used to work or drugs like them used to work for depression and epilepsy are the same mechanisms that are important to try and reduce the pain in neuropathic pain. But it is a misnomer, and they probably shouldn't still be called, but that's how they're commonly known. The best way I've heard them described is they calm down the nervous system. Is, is that right? Again, without getting too technical, the antidepressants are thought to reduce this pathway, which is the descending excitation. So the way the pain goes from the periphery into the spinal cord into the brain, it has several points at which that pain signal is modulatable. And one of the modulations comes from the brain. So the brain has this descending both excitatory, i.e. switching on, and inhibitory pathways, switching off. What the antidepressants do is affect those descending pathways. One way of doing that is reducing the descending excitation, and the other way is increasing the descending inhibition. And it's thought that it does a combination of these things. The anticonvulsants tend to have a slightly mechanistic way of operating in that the ones that are most commonly used, which are the gabapentinoids, which are gabapentin and pregabalin, they act by reducing the activity at the level of the spinal cord. So they directly reduce that transmission, if you like, the electrical signal, by reducing the effect of the normal transmitters on the normal system. So it calms the system down. Now, that's how we think it works, but there are other things that can be useful with these medications as secondary effects. For example, in pregabalin, it has uh, an effect on anxiety. And therefore, and again, not saying that the pain is from the anxiety per se, but we do know that the psychological effect of pain is very important, and we can't treat the pain in isolation. So if you're also getting somebody who's got anxiety issues as well as pain, then you can get a sort of secondary effect of the pregabalin, for example. Now, the gabapentinoids, if they reduce anxiety, and I'm thinking of things like amitriptyline as well, which is an antidepressant, yeah. I know from experience that one of the great effects, as far as I'm concerned, is sleep. Yeah. The antidepressants, and specifically meaning medicines such as amitriptyline and nortriptyline, which is a close cousin of the amitriptyline, those effects on the neuropathic pain are independent of the effect on depression. There's no evidence that at the doses that are used for neuropathic pain, they have any effect on depression. However, there is suggestion that they do have a beneficial effect on the sleep. The only problem with that with the amitriptyline and nortriptyline is it doesn't seem to improve quality sleep. It may pe say people are sleeping longer, but if you look at the quality indicators of sleep like REM sleep, etc., it's not necessarily that good.
So it is a slight issue with that and with the use of them just to try and help sleep. Now, is some low-quality sleep better than no high-quality sleep? I don't know. But it just has to be borne in mind that it's, you know, they're not perfect. But again, when we use these medications, the antidepressant medications, we're using them primarily for the antineuropathic pain effect. Now, we have got millions of years of conditioning to say pain means damage because that's what originally was there for. What we've had a growing awareness and understanding of in the last 15, 20 years is that we don't need a cause for pain. Sometimes the pain is in the primary sensing system itself. The problem is that's where it is. And actually the new ICD classification codes have taken that into consideration. Before, it's always pain secondary to something else. It's pain caused by this, pain caused by that. Now you can have a diagnosis of pain without any need for secondary consideration. So why have you got chronic pain? Because I have chronic pain. My chronic pain is the problem. My chronic pain is the fact that there's an issue with my primary sensing system and that has gone off kilter and that is why you have chronic pain. Now that's not for all chronic pains but it accepts that there is an entity where pain is the issue and that goes back to people saying my pain is worrisome and serious because I think it's indicative of damage processes going on. Now in many chronic or persistent pains there is no damage process going on. For example, if you do MRI scans on 100 people, you will find a significant number of people with degenerative disease. You can do that on 100 people who have no pain, you will find the same number. Just because then you've got somebody with pain, you do an MRI and say, ah, you've got degenerative disease, that's why you've got pain. That correlation is very, very tenuous and not really there because you don't need it to be there. When I've seen people with, you look at the MRI and you think, that is horrible, it's, you know, everything's falling apart, and they have no pain. And you see other ones where the damage may be trivial, and they've got intractable, serious, well, serious to them, very difficult pain to treat. So this cause and effect isn't clear for persistent pain. Now this slightly, the persistent pain and chronic pains, there are lots of different types, and that does sort of change slightly depending on what you think the cause is. Is the cause actually this is persistent pain or is there for example in this hospital is it because you've got a tumour growing into your spine that is very clearly affecting the nerve and that's very clearly causing the problem. But even in our patients here you will see scans that you think that's just terrible they must have huge amounts of pain and they don't and other people where you think those changes are modest have huge amount of pain. Pain is not always discernible by scans and this is one of the things that patients always say people don't believe that I got pain or don't understand how I could have pain because I've been treated I had my surgery two years ago how can I have any pain after that and this is all part of that persistent post-surgical pain that is set up and causes pain without any obvious reason for it apart from what we know and we have quite a lot of science background now to understand some of the mechanisms that are going on that cause this pain. Well, on that subject, who is at risk? There are risk factors that are associated with these persistent post-surgical pains. And again, we're, I know we're concentrating on surgery, but we mustn't forget the chemotherapy, which again is our area of specialty in this hospital, and just to a lesser degree, but also important is radiotherapy. But to go back to people who are at risk, depending on the surgery, there are different risk factors. So these are people that if you have these risk factors, then you're more likely to then develop this persistent pain. One of the things is if you have pain at time of surgery. 
So that is quite interesting because that's something we can do something about. If we can reduce the pain around the time of surgery, we can reduce the likelihood that that pain will then generate into the persistent pain. Other factors that, again, slightly different depending on the type of surgery people have is age and female sex or male sex, again, depending on the type of surgery, and also things like anxiety, depression around the time of surgery. Also, chemotherapy is a risk factor. So having surgery as well as chemotherapy, that's a risk factor. And there's several other sort of lesser important risk factors. But we can, to some degree, predict those people that are higher risk of developing this persistent post-surgical pain. And some centres, and we're doing it to a degree, to try and single out and, and make sure that we follow up these patients. We also follow up every single patient that are being treated with pain relief medicine to sort of make sure that they're not lost to the system so they don't get put on those pain relief medicines in perpetuity. They just could people go, oh, just carry on, carry on. So we see these transitional, so-called transitional patients to make sure that somebody follows them up after their surgery when we know they've had some kind of persistent pain and see whether or not that pain will then continue at the three months point that you said. Now, three months is arbitrary. People can get pain from surgery all the way up to three months, but it just shows that we know that there is a proportion of patients that will have pain and that will dissipate to that three-month period. And then there's a subset that will persist more than three months, and then they can persist for any length of time. So for people who have that pain before surgery... Do you have the time and space, if you like, to treat that pain with all the psychological therapies and whatever? Yeah, it, it is challenging, but I think we are lucky enough to have the resources to do that, and we're lucky enough that hopefully it gets flagged up and we can do it. Now, it's not clear whether or not the preoperative pain, although it is a risk factor, if you treat it, then it becomes less of a pain. Or are the factors that were responsible for having that preoperative pain then also the factors that will make a higher risk of developing the persistent pain? It's difficult to know. It's not been clearly shown that if you treat the pain preoperatively, it actually helps. That doesn't mean we shouldn't. It doesn't mean that people won't get benefit from that because we're hopefully reducing their pain burden before they have to go through their operation. And there's the psychology again. We, we try and access that when we can. Now, obviously, we won't see everybody in enough time before they have the surgery because of the nature of cancer surgery being sort of fairly quick. But we do try and flag up anybody who has pain issues beforehand to then deal with them in the perioptive period, i.e. around the time of the surgery, and then if there's any issues to follow them up afterwards. In the post-surgery pain, how severe is it? I mean, what sort of pain are we really talking about here? Well, again, the severity is difficult to measure, and we use imperfect tools, but ones that are reproducible and sort of have meaning, and that's the, the numerical scoring. The numbers suggest that up to about 50% of patients can get some kind of post chronic or persistent post-surgical pain. And about, again, slightly dependent on what papers you read and what definitions you use, but probably around 10% will get a pain that is above 5 on that numerical rating score of 0 to 10. So that's about 10%, and that may be conservative in some people's eyes, maybe a bit excessive in other people's eyes estimation, but it's ballpark. That number of patients are getting severe, defined by over 5 on that 0 to 10 scale, pain persistently after surgery. It's usually in the area where you've had the surgery, or that can be sort of referred in some areas as well. It's usually, again, mostly, but with a caveat I said that not everybody has neuropathic type pain, 
but the neuropathic type pain, which is said to be more bang for your buck, i.e. it seems to be more painful even at a, a given level and more intrusive and more interfering in activities of daily living and quality of life. So they're the features of the pain from this post-surgical. So what long-term management do people with pain after cancer surgery or cancer treatment have? Is it a long-term thing? Yeah, well, it usually is a long-term thing. Now, the natural history of how the pain goes is very difficult to sort of piece together. But it does seem that over time, things can improve, albeit take a long time. The treatment is multidisciplinary. You cannot treat pain in isolation. You have to look at all the psychology, the occupational therapy, and all these sort of things, which again, we do, especially in chemotherapy-induced pain, which is a bit different from the surgical pain, but it is even more neuropathic, as you might expect, because the nerves are being damaged by the chemotherapy. So we have all these allied non-pharmacological things that are working on the sort of holistic patient, if you like, and dealing with activity, daily living, quality of life, etc. And we also then have pharmacology, though the medicines and tablets, and, and we use a lot of topical approaches, i.e. putting things directly where the pain is. And the idea is then you can concentrate the effect locally without risking the medicines being absorbed around the body and causing adverse effects. That's Dr Paul Farquhar-Smith, consultant in anaesthesia and pain medicine at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. As always, I want to remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Don't forget that you can download all editions of Airing Pain from Pain Concern's website, which is painconcern.org.uk, and there you'll also find Pain Concern's extensive resources to support living with chronic pain. Well, in this edition of Airing Pain, we're looking at issues surrounding persistent post-surgical pain. Here's Dr Paul Farquhar-Smith to finish this edition of Airing Pain. Even though the awareness of this issue has increased over the years, and so people are now much more understanding. Indeed, on our consent forms, it actually has persistent post-surgical pain as a risk of the surgery they're having. So it's acknowledged that this is a real entity, and it is a real entity. But people still don't understand, and under- understandably don't understand, how can you have pain when everything's been healed? And part of what we do, which I think is beneficial, and we get feedback from the patient saying, thank you for telling me that because now I don't feel alone. I now have some idea what's going on, is explaining the concept of this post-surgical pain and what it is and what it is not. Now, what people nearly always or quite often think is because they had pain when they had the cancer, they now have pain after the surgery. That must mean I've got the cancer come back. Now, in most cases, we do not need to have the cancer coming back to explain this pain. Now, the teams will investigate as they see fit and and they will decide whether or not oncologically there's an issue. But I say, look, there doesn't have to be oncologically an issue. 99 times out of 100, these sort of pains, is not from recurrence. And going through and explaining what it is and what it is not, people say, thank you for doing that, because I didn't know. And people saying to me, how can you have pain two years after surgery? You should be up on your feet and back to work and everything should be rosy. What we do know is you look at people who had head and neck surgery, had major 
neck dissection after head and neck surgery, two years after, 75% of people have not gone back to work because of symptoms from many things, including pain. I know I was speaking to a relative of mine a few months ago who had a throat cancer, and his wife, who is a health professional, was saying the procedure to get rid of the cancer was excellent. Nobody warned us about the recovery after it. I can't comment on, obviously, that case, but I can say that that would be very unusual to happen in our establishment because we, you know, as I said, we've got already the consent has that in, in our surgeries, and we people are aware of it, and it's partly because I've been banging on about it for years, and people do understand it. They know that it's an issue. So hopefully that would not happen in our hospital because we'd be aware of it and people are coached and counselled. Now what is, is not easy to quantify is the fact that at the time that you're having a surgery, you've given your cancer diagnosis, your head is not really with it and you can get told, be told a whole ream of information that you do not recall. We have to understand and it's beholden then on, on the practitioners to make sure at the most difficult time when they're not processing information in a way that they normally would because of the huge impact that the diagnosis had on them, that we make sure that we get over them, look, the surgery is one step, the journey is longer. We will support you through that journey, but it will be a long journey and it won't be a few weeks after and then you're back on Rosie, although that's what we're aspiring to. But we have to aware that, that for many people, the journey will be longer, but as long as we can support and get people through it, and to some extent identify those people who are going to have an issue, then we can get onto it quicker and sooner and hopefully get people sorted out better. But there is a definable issue that was highlighted by the government a few years ago, is who is looking after these cancer survivors. Now I'm moving into the group that have been cured or in remission that aren't really being seen regularly by the oncologists because there's no need for it because their cancer is in remission, yet still have significant symptom burden. Who is looking after those patients? And we know that the cancer survivorship population is increasing and increasing hugely and will be many, many millions of patients in the next sort of 10, 15 years. So there's a growing number of patients that we expect will have symptom burden for long term after their treatments. And it's not clear who exactly is going to give them support. Now, we obviously do our best, and being a cancer specialist centre. However, that's not going to be the case nationwide. So where are these patients going to get support and benefit from? Now, the government did write a paper about 10 years ago that had a very nice way of dealing with it in the community and having a sort of pyramid thing about you can self-refer. However, as far as I understand, there's no clear structure where that's going to, or who's going to supply that, because it's going to put a large burden on primary care. And unless we sort of recognise that it is going to increase and have a plan going forward, it's going to become perhaps more difficult to, to deal with. So patients and their supporters and their family need to know about these concerns at the start of their cancer journey. Yeah, and I think certainly, as in my experience, the information is much more widely out there. The patients have been coached a lot more about these long-term issues and how they can get support and what things we can do about it. My role, you like, in, in this establishment over the last 20 years has been doing that. And people with chemotherapy-induced neuropathy, it's not incurable. We can symptom control. We don't do anything about the underlying nerve recovery. But we can try and help the symptoms until the nerves maybe months, years down the line start improving.
and that's that's in again the last 20 years it's improved exponentially so now i we're seeing nearly everybody i think has these issues is that so well done in other hospitals i can't say but i think given the education that we've had to do here the things that we've been doing both in publishing and meetings and conferences is trying to highlight the problem not only to the public but to practitioners many years ago i would get referrals saying this patient's got pain everything's healed up after surgery i don't understand why and you go well you should know why because it's persistent post-surgical pain that we know and now i don't get those letters anymore i get the referrals saying i think persistent post-surgical pain